0: Welcome, everyone, back to the Heineman Podcast. We're happy to be back for another season tackling the most important topics in education. Today, we are talking about the rising concern surrounding mental health in our schools, what's causing it, and what's being done to address it. Joining us in conversation is Susan Stearns of the New Hampshire chapter of the National Alliance on Mental Illness, or NAMI. Susan, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm really pleased to be with you today. We're so happy to have you. Um, I'd love to start with just hearing a little bit about you, your role at NAMI-NH, and for folks who are listening who aren't familiar, what does NAMI do as an organization, both nationally and then locally?
1: You know, I am the executive director. I've been in this role as executive director since January. Prior to that, I served as the organization's deputy director, and I've been employed here for the last nine years but I am someone who's been part of NAMI New Hampshire for two decades now, and that's because I have loved ones living with mental illness, and I've lost loved ones to suicide, so it's work that's very near and dear to me. NAMI New Hampshire is a grassroots organization working to improve the lives of all people affected by mental illness and suicide through support, education, and advocacy. Last year, we served 40,000 folks Only made possible because of our tremendous cadre of committed volunteers throughout the state, over 200 of them, who provide a host of volunteer-led support groups, education programs, many of which are indeed NAMI National Signature Programs, such as Family to Family, which is a a life-changing eight-week program for families who have an adult loved one living with a mental illness. I've taken it myself, and it truly changed how I interacted with my loved one and helped improve our relationship as well as help me better navigate the system and help them navigate the system. That is a uh, NAMI national signature program, and we're so proud to be able to offer that here in New Hampshire. Similarly, we offer NAMI basics, which is a similar program provided for parents and caregivers of kiddos experiencing um, significant mental health challenges. We also have a program called peer-to-peer, Again, through NAMI National, we're able to offer this signature program, and that is individuals themselves, adults living with mental illness, trained to teach this education program to their peers. We have support groups for folks who have an adult loved one living with mental illness, support groups for parents and caregivers of kiddos with mental health challenges, support groups for adults, peers um, living with mental illness. We also have support groups for survivors of suicide loss virtually all of those are available remotely using Zoom, which has increased access for some folks who would not otherwise have been able to get to them. So those those are just a sampling of some of our our programs, and we're so grateful to be able to offer those here in New Hampshire. I think folks may have seen recently the rollout nationwide of the 988 uh, mental health crisis line. Great resource. Here in New Hampshire, we were really ahead of the curve in January of this year, on January 1st, um, the state of New Hampshire implemented the New Hampshire Rapid Response Access Point. And that's that's a different number from 988. If you don't have a 603 area code, I recommend you call the Rapid Response Access Point directly at 833-710-6477. And I say that because that access point, when you call there, they are able to do an assessment on the phone, determine if perhaps a mobile crisis team should be deployed to you so that they can do a further evaluation. They can also determine if perhaps you need a crisis stabilization appointment at your community mental health center in the next day or two, and certainly make the determination if you or your loved one should go to the emergency department. So that could, it's not to rule that out, but there are other options. And my hesitation with 988 as a blanket is they haven't got geolocation yet. So if you don't have a 603 area code, your call will go to whatever call center is covering your, that area code and they can't deploy, for example, New Hampshire's mobile crisis teams. So the 833-710-6477 number is really the best number to use if you're in New Hampshire.
0: And just out of curiosity, who is involved in the in the crisis teams? Are those like like social workers or
1: every community mental health center? We have ten in the state. The regional has a mobile crisis team, and they're typically made up of master's level clinicians, some bachelor's level clinicians, and usually a peer support specialist. So, someone who has lived and experienced going through this uh, the ex- receiving mental health services here in New Hampshire. Typically a team of two will come out to your location if mobile crisis is determined to be the correct um, response. I have heard fabulous things about folks that they will even, they will call you to make sure they're at the right place. So they don't knock on your neighbor's door and say, hey, Stephanie, it's mobile crisis team. Oh, it's not Stephanie. (laughs) So so they're, they're a wonderful resource And then the rapid response access point when you call is staffed by different folks um, who that's all they do is respond to those calls. They'll do the assessment and they can offer if it's appropriate the mobile crisis team to come to you. For your educators too, I have heard that in some cases they can deploy mobile crisis to a school. So it's a great resource for schools to call. And I always say it's a resource even if you're not sure what you need,
0: that you can contact them. So can you talk to me a little bit about what mental health concerns uh, you see coming to the forefront, specifically in our schools?
1: I want to preface this with we hear a lot about that America's youth are facing a mental health crisis. We've seen reports from the American Psychiatric Association a year ago, um, the U.S. Surgeon General, just to name a couple, who called attention to this. But it's important to realize pre-COVID, our youth were facing a mental health crisis. It's only been exacerbated. Our system was already strained, somewhat fragile in some places, and COVID has made that worse. We definitely are seeing an increase of folks reaching out, trying to get resources for their child. We hear from educators all the time, and I'm using educators broadly. We hear from coaches, for example, athletic coaches. Um, We hear from obviously guidance counselors, teachers, paras, the whole gamut, because everyone has recognized the impact this has had on our youth. And it has varied. You may have some children who really thrived going to school remotely. And and even within the same household and others who struggled with that isolation. And we know that kids have lost some ground because of the two years of interrupted schooling or erratic schooling, perhaps is a better... (laughs) Um, And that's been a challenge. We are seeing increased reports, um, particularly of young uh, girls who are increased self-harm, self-injury. We're seeing increased suicidal ideation, especially around amongst our youth of color, uh, young black males. Um, But we are seeing that across the gamut. We do here at NAMI New Hampshire have our connect suicide prevention program which is something that we, it's a, that is a NAMI New Hampshire homegrown program. It is a nationally recognized best practice for suicide prevention. And we have used it for a number of years with a lot of our partners here in New Hampshire and actually uh, throughout the country and in some cases internationally. We also have through that program, our connect youth leader program, which actually um, with school personnel, and it could be a teacher, a dean, a, so, a, a guidance counselor, whoever as a leader, we're able to um, come in, train youth leaders who then are able to spread those messages, safe messaging around suicide prevention in the school. And truly the work that they're doing is life-changing and life-saving, and they're doing it as peers. It it really is remarkable. They talk about how the cafeteria personnel they train them and outreach them, and those personnel have even will say, Thank you. We hear you in the line and the things you're saying to each other, and we don't know how to respond. So our Connect uh, Suicide Prevention Program is something that we are able to offer to schools. That is what we call a socio-ecological model, meaning that it really is based on the community. So in this case, it would be the school communities trained. So yes, you would be training your custodial staff, your lunch staff, your bus, your bus drivers. So those folks who and everyone interacts with kids, and they're all really important to the safety net that we have for our kids. Everyone who is part of their lives is, and that's everyone in that school.
0: The The, the socio-ecological model you mentioned really struck me. You know, something I've noticed um, over the course of my own life is a real shift in the conversation around mental health and mental illness as a as a private thing, something that's at home to a much more public conversation. And I was struck when you mentioned, you know, it's that it's not just teachers who are interacting with students and picking up on some concerning things or noticing behavior that is also coaches and cafeteria staff as you mentioned. Is this part of why school has become such a a focal point for mental health when we're thinking about our students. I mean, they're spending so much time there around so many different types of people.
1: Absolutely. The reality is during the school year, it's some households, probably school staff have eyes on their kids more than the parents. Parents get home, they make dinner, they do all those things that you have to do. I know I was a single mom and I know I strove to be in touch with my children as much as I could, but the schools were incredibly important partners. And they see things that we parents don't see. There's really some interesting recent research indicating that educators are actually even more concerned about adolescents' mental health than their parents are. And I think this is my thought, that is because they see them so much more and see them in these different settings, and so they have an opportunity to catch some of these things that perhaps parents don't see. The, interestingly, that same, the, the same report found that more educators reported a child coming to them with a mental health concern than parents did. There's a lot of research that shows that that trusted out, adult outside the family is often the linchpin for a child's mental health and that and provides that important safety net or soft place to land or a place, our LGBTQIA plus kids, a place to test that with before they may have that conversation at home. Educators report more often than parents that those issues around sexuality and gender identity are much greater impacts for kids' mental health than parents see. And I think part of that is because often teachers have provided that place or that you can test it out before and see how will this go. And for some kiddos, we know home may never be the place that they can do that, have that conversation. And having someone who can affirm who you are, especially if you're in a household where that's not safe, that is life-saving. Educators are critical to our kiddos there's no question and i realize it puts a tremendous burden on them and it puts a tremendous burden on them as you know we've all gone through this you know the pandemic has been like a collective trauma for all of us but it also has to remind us that our educators they've gone through the same collective trauma they are also having to do their take care of themselves their loved ones and yet they're still in that role because they've always been our helpers especially with our kids right there's no question; it's treme- It's tremendously difficult. Getting back to where you first started with this, the openness that we're seeing, though, and this has definitely been changing. Um, we've seen this here at NAMI New Hampshire throughout the pandemic. More and more people who have never before sought mental health care for themselves or their or their or their children are out are reaching out to us. They're presenting at our mental health practices throughout the state or sometimes even in emergency departments, folks who say, I've never had to seek this kind of care before, but they're talking about it. It is a much more normalized conversation. And I think part of that is because of the collective trauma. That I think for many of us, there's, even if this is not something that we have done work that we've done or really had impact in our lives in the past, we can see it's almost like an understand, it's understandable what everyone's gone through that, but more folks would be struggling, right? That's an opportunity because for so long, people have not gotten treatment, not gotten care for their kids or themselves because of the stigma. And if we can bring mental illness and suicide out of the shadows, we can truly improve lives and even save lives.
0: What role are are young people playing in this? Like you said, um, there has been this sort of collective trauma and, I'm sure that students are really speaking out and being very open with their experiences. Can you speak a little bit to that? There's no question that we are seeing our young people almost leading the
1: way here in as in this work to dispel the stigma and end the disc- discrimination. I think that is, in part, they're young, right? <laughs> um, that's always an advantage, perhaps more willing to take some chances that, that older folks might, might not. But I think, too, they really are recognizing the impact that not just the pandemic has had, but things like climate change. Our young people are so in tune with what is happening in terms of climate change and what, how that impacts their futures. And they recognize that that's a significant source of anxiety for many folks, but especially our young folks justice issues around race, LGBTQIA issues, ethnicity. Our young people, they're actively working to build the world they want to live in. And they are truly leading the way in many respects with these conversations. We have found that when we work with our youth leaders, They truly step in and lead the conversation. And interestingly, they often, through that leadership, push our educators and our school leaders to be more open and to be more receptive to doing something a different way, perhaps, because it will help people feel better, help people take care of themselves. So I had the opportunity to... um, attend a roundtable offered by one of our senators. And there were youth leaders there from a number of places in the state who frankly gave me such a tremendous sense of hope. I am inspired by them all the time. We need to listen to them. They do know what's going on. And we need to give them credit for understanding that. And we need to also allow them to push us to think outside of our box, so to speak. I think we often, we hesitate to have some of these conversations because of stigma, because of how we, it's societally we have really given the message of you should repress these things or you shouldn't talk about them. And the reality is sometimes you need to step outside of that comfort zone and have those conversations. I'm not gonna say they're, they're difficult even, they, they feel difficult. But I think once you engage in them, and so many educators do this so well, and they understand it, that recognizing, yeah, it doesn't feel so good maybe to start that, but the outcome of that can not only be critically important for providing that safety net for the youth, but it's also, it also for the adult having that conversation, I think often gives you back also a moment of self-reflection, as well as thinking about, and this happens to me all the time when I interact with our our youth leaders is what am I doing for myself? What am I doing for my loved ones? Am I practicing what I preach? I think those are really important things for us to, to make sure we're doing. There's an expression about our role is to help those who are struggling and push on systems, right? That May make it difficult to do that,
0: yeah, absolutely. And I'm so, so happy that you touched on not only the weight of Covid, which you know we've we've talked about, but also, yeah, as you said, climate change, sexism, racism, all these other forms of bigotry and structures. and you know, you're so right. we can we can we can take care of ourselves and each other as much as we can. And I think at the end of the day, that, that, that's a lot to carry around. It's a lot to carry around the burden of climate change and a pandemic on top of our daily stressors. And I
1: think that's important to remember because it is a lot. And no one of us should be trying to shoulder those burdens alone. And so having those relationships, and those relationships are, you know, they're diverse throughout our lives and how they, and how they play out but recognizing how important that is that even, even for the most introverted person, and I think a lot of people discovered this during COVID. I have a lot of introverted friends who were like, not that introverted. Um, but even the person who says, I'm a diehard introvert still needs to be part of a community and they still need those supports. They may not need as large a community. They may, they may not want to have as much interaction on a daily basis, for example, but you need that soft place to land. One of my children, when they were younger and going to see a therapist, I remember the therapist saying, I only worry about kids that have fewer than two friends, that really two friends. It's it's not that one friend is, isn't great, but one friend can't always be the only one to support you. So, and I thought that was a really good way to think about, it. like, you can't just expect that one person is going to be able even to support, support you. I, and I see that in my own personal life. I am lucky to have friends and family. And there are those that I would take one thing to versus another more often, so.
0: I think that piece um, on community and building relationships is a beautiful point to wrap up on. Um, You've told us so much about um, these community building programs that NAMI New Hampshire has. Is there anything coming up that you would like like to plug for people who are listening?
1: One of the things I would be remiss not to mention is that on October 8th of this year, we will have our 20th annual NAMI Walks New Hampshire. This is the state's um, largest mental health and suicide prevention awareness raising event. We are back in person this year. There is also a virtual option. So if folks aren't comfortable with that, they can participate virtually, share a photo with the hashtag stigma free in the 603. And we'll pick that up on Sunday the 9th on social media and share that. But on the 8th in Concord, we will have our annual walk. It's free to register. You can register online through our website, naminh.org. One of the most impactful things is, you know, last time we did this in 2019 in person, we had over 2,000 people who came out to participate. It is for folks who've been impacted by mental illness and suicide, an incredibly affirming moment to be with all these folks who have experienced similar things. And it really is about making sure people recognize that mental mental illness affects everyone. Suicide affects all of us at some point in some way. And we need to make sure that policymakers understand how important it is to ensure adequate services. And I think a lot of your listeners probably will contest to having difficulty they or with their students accessing those services, this is an opportunity for us to come together and really raise that awareness. Welcome, folks. And again, you can find out more on our website, mommynh.org. The Heinemann Podcast is a production of Heinemann Publishing. It is produced and edited by Steph George. Sound mixing by Steph George. Our creative producer is Lauren Audette. And our executive producer is me, Brett Whitmarsh. To learn more about the Heinemann podcast, visit blog.heinemann.com. Thanks for listening. Copyright Heinemann Publishing.